You are listening to My HR Buzz, brought to you by My HR Concierge. Hosted by Chris Cooley, we'll bring you various topics and guests to shed light on the often confusing world of HR and also employee screening. We'll be putting the human in human resources. Thank you for joining us today on the My HR Buzz podcast. We know the world of HR and employee management can get confusing. We want to use this podcast to break down those topics and provide you the information that you need and not put you to sleep while doing it. The podcast can be found on iTunes and all your other typical podcasting sites. And in addition to the podcast, many of these topics can also be found on our MyHRBuzz blog, which is www.myhrbuzz.com. This is a free resource. It has a lot of great information, and we really encourage you to use that. Today, we're going to discuss the Affordable Care Act. I'd like to welcome Misty Baker today. Misty is the Director of Compliance and Governmental Affairs for Benefit Mall, which is one of the largest uh, general agencies in the country. And we, we do appreciate you joining us today, Misty. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. This is a follow-up to an earlier podcast we discussed, where we discussed the California versus Texas Supreme Court case and how it could potentially affect the Affordable Care Act and the health care going forward. The case recently had another milestone as the Supreme Court held oral arguments on November 10th, 2020, and Misty graciously agreed to join us to update what we learned during the oral arguments. So, Misty, can you, can you give us an overview of, of the case, just as kind of a general recap, and then we, can, then we can walk through maybe what we learned through the oral arguments? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So, what we saw um, earlier really in 2018, was 18 Republican-leading states argued that the entire Affordable Care Act um, must be dismantled. And that is because Congress in 2017 zeroed out the individual mandate. So let let me give you a little bit more information about the individual mandate. Originally, under ACA or Obamacare, what some people call it, um, there was a, a, a portion of that bill that said every American must have health insurance, and if you don't, you will pay a fine. The fines escalated up to $695 in 2017, and what Congress did is Congress zeroed out that penalty, that individual mandate penalty. So what these 18 Republican-leaning states actually did was go back to lower courts, Um, and tell lower courts, well, look, if the individual mandate has no penalty, no teeth to it, then the entire Affordable Care Act must fall. And that's kind of where the California versus Texas kind of picks up. Um, It has some really important parts that the, the justices described and asked questions about really about striking down that individual mandate. Can it be severed by itself? Does the entire law need to fall just because of one particular part? Remember, the individual mandate didn't go away. Every American still must have health insurance, but there's no penalty for it. And so that's what the Supreme Court really talked about on November 10th. Okay. No, thank you for that. And and so as we talk about these oral arguments, um, what were the what were the 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 three what were the, the primary components that they were looking at? So the primary components really are 
a couple of legal terms that we're going to have to talk about. <laughs> so the first, of course, right. And just for the record, I am not an attorney, so I'm going to explain this to you in like a, um, layman's terms here a little bit, but basically what we're looking at is standing. Um, do, do the plaintiffs and remember that there has to be somebody harmed um, in order to, um, you know, bring a case uh, to the Supreme Court or any court. So somebody had to be harmed. In this instance, the harm was for two plaintiffs from Texas um, that said, you know, we are harmed because we have to pay a penalty. We have to pay that individual mandate penalty. We have to buy certain kinds of insurance. So number one, were they harmed? Did they have standing in the case? Um, that's really, to me, the heart of the case. Um, secondly, we see severability. You know, can you carve out a piece of the Affordable Care Act without doing away with the entire act? And um, I think it was the Supreme Justice who said something to the effect of, we want to use a scalpel, not a bulldozer when it comes to the Affordable Care Act. Um, so it, you know, those are the two main um, parts of what we're looking at um, with the Supreme Court case. Okay, thank you. So, so as it relates to standing, um, I, I, I know just from what little bit that I, you know, from what, what I researched, um, there's a big doubt. So if we, so as I understand it, that's the first step, right? We have to, we have to make sure that they are in standing. Uh, so what are your thoughts on that? How do you think from these arguments that, 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 that went? Um, you know, it, it was interesting because there was a lot of back and forth. There were a lot of questions asked really about standing. The justices used different examples. Um, one example was, well, if I mandated everyone to plant a tree, would they actually plant a tree? And if they didn't, would they be, would they be penalized? They asked a number of very interesting questions when it comes to standing. So really, are these two plaintiffs, do they have the right to sue? Were they harmed? Were they penalized? for not having um, health insurance. It's very interesting to me. Also, you know, I believe that the heart of the case is really, um, it is, you know, is the individual mandate constitutional now that there's no penalty um, attached to it? So when we, when we think about, you know, the individual mandate still being a requirement, but no penalty, Basically, no harm would come to individuals if they did not purchase insurance. Does that really make a course for a, a case for standing in this? Um, again, I wish I was a lawyer to to inter, uh, to you know kind of dissect it a little bit more. Um, I mean, I I think the Affordable Care Act is going to survive. Um, but I'm not sure that these two plaintiffs had the right to sue in the beginning. When, you know, did they really have um, harm come to them? Were they penalized for not having insurance? So that's going to be a really interesting type uh, of response we'll see. Um, and we will have a ton of written response. It's going to be very robust 
um, in May or June of 2021 when we finally get the answer on this? I think so. I agree. And, and one of the things that I found interesting is uh, I, I was reading and it was going through the different arguments of all the different parties that were that were involved. And the the U.S., the government, um, they came with the notion and their argument was that since the plaintiffs were injured through other components of the bill, that that gave them the right to sue, gave them the standing uh, and the injury to be able to, you know, to, to give them standing within this case. And it's really interesting because as the, as the justices were going back and forth and, and asking questions, basically, uh, I forget which justice, one of the justices came forward and said, you know, that's, that's exactly opposite of what the U.S. government has always said. Because if you, if you do that, if you stand by that argument, then essentially it opens wide open standing for, for other cases. For example, if a bill, if they pass a bill and a bill can have, you know, many, many subcomponents to it, that if you're injured by any of those subcomponents, you could, you could sue for any, for anything in that bill. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, so it eventually, so it essentially just opened up standing just wide open, which is exactly opposite of what they've always held. So it's interesting to see how they play those cards and to try to get the result that they want, how these arguments are tailored, but yet they may not be consistent with what they were arguing the case, you know, the case before, if that makes sense. So I thought that was fascinating. It is fascinating and how they can kind of take pieces that are precedent before this one and apply it to this particular um this particular case. I, I find it, you know, again, very, very fascinating. Absolutely. And, and, and one thing too, you mentioned was the constitutionality of the, uh, of the individual mandate. Um, you know, and I think that, that obviously is a big question too. Uh, is it, is it constitutional? And, and one of the things that uh, I think it was one of the justices brought up, I think it was Roberts, but uh, one of the justices brought up is that, you know, essentially what they're arguing today uh, is that the individual mandate doesn't matter to the ACA as a whole, um, that it's, it's, you know, it's just a component. It can live without it. It doesn't disrupt the bill and so forth. Whereas back in 2012 in the um, NFIB case, which is the previous case where they, they brought the AC, uh, ACA to the Supreme Court, they essentially ruled that the mandate was the primary component of the ACA and without it, it could not live. Uh, and that's one way that they got, got it, uh, that they were able to keep the ACA intact is because they said that was a tax under the individual mandate. And now the same parties are basically arguing the total opposite of what they did in the last case. So it does seem like, it seemed like both, both sides flip and flop on this, depending on what they're trying to trying to have happen. Well, you know, it's interesting that you bring up that in an NFIB case, because, you know, we all know it's like the whole cornerstone of the Affordable Care Act was really that you had to buy health insurance. Every American, every employer, basically over 50 lives, whether it's full-time or full-time equivalent lives had to buy it. That, that's like the pillar of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and so that mandate to buy health insurance is, is 
you know, honestly, is how some of the ACA kept funded. You know, those penalty dollars that, you know, it mm-hmm. started out 295, escalated to 695, all that stuff was built in to keep the Affordable Care Act running as it should, well, as it was uh, written. Um, and so it's it's really interesting to see that, you know, since 2017, we haven't had those individual mandate penalties. And so that money has not been collected and it seems to be working just fine. The Affordable Care Act seems to be working just fine um, without that. So it that's a that's a very interesting uh, part of the NFIB uh, case. Yeah, and and as we walk this path, we know you know we talked about standing, and so with with the standing, I know there's a lot of question on whether these individuals, these parties, have a right to sue. Uh, but assuming they do, and assuming that the individual mandate uh, is ruled unconstitutional, uh, at its let, let, make that assumption, then the question is, as you as you mentioned earlier, is severability. So if you wipe out the individual individual mandate, does it wipe out the whole law? And um, so, so I think that's that that's kind of the the next step to that. So, so what are your thoughts? I know you made the you were. Uh, talking about the justice that said we use, need to use a scalpel instead of a bulldozer. What are your thoughts as it relates to the severability of that, of that mandate? Um, you know, I, I think severability is something that's going to save the affordable care act in its entirety. I really believe that the ACA will survive. And, and I say that, I'm not pro or against either way, Um, but based on what I heard in that 80 minutes of discussion um, in California versus Texas, I really got the feeling that the justices were okay with severing the individual mandate from the rest of the Affordable Care Act. you know, and and I I can't remember if I think it was Justice Roberts who was talking about the broccoli. Um, you remember one of the things that you know they kept saying in earlier court cases is you know basically you know we're going to mandate everyone has to eat broccoli, um, and I think Justice Roberts says you know we spent all this time talking about broccoli and and nothing came out of it, but. I think that, that, you know, I think that that individual mandate is severable. And when I think, you know, when I really look at the case, I I say this because the individual mandate has, those monies have not been collected since 2017. And the ACA is still working fine. And Congress did that. Um, And so I, you know, I think the best intent is for everyone to buy health insurance, Um, really reducing the number of insured. But I do not believe for a second that the Supreme Court is going to cut the entire ACA out. Um, There are too many moving parts, are too many good parts of it. And even when we think about, you know, President Trump has signed an executive order saying the ACA um, will still, or I'm sorry, even if the ACA is, uh, terminated or, uh, through the Supreme Court that there will be no more pre-existing conditions. Well, we know, but because uh, um, the outcome of the 
the president see the the elections um, that Biden, you know, is definitely going to support um, keeping the ACA together um, in its current format. We won't have this um, ruling from the Supreme Court until midsummer of 2021. And so what I think will happen is that they will sever the individual mandate or they're just going to leave it alone because, you know, nobody's being harmed. There's no charge. There's no tax or penalty people are paying um, for that. And it's running just fine without those monies. So, you know, I, I say if they're going to do anything, they're probably going to strike down the mandate and leave the rest of the law in place. Um, and remember, you have to have five votes in order to strike down um, the ACA. That That's, you know, that's five of those justices saying the ACA has not been good um, for Americans. Yes, it has its major flaws, um, but it also has some very good points as well. No, I agree. And, and I know during the during the oral arguments, uh, Roberts and Kavanaugh did come out and say that they were they were inclined to leave the law in place if, if the mandate was struck down. So to your point, those are two of your more conservative justices. So if, if that's, if that's their thoughts, there's no way to get to five. So I agree with you. I, I think, I think even if it's, if it's found unconstitutional, the, the, it, there will be, uh, they will just sever that mandate or leave it alone and um, won't strike down the whole law. Um, now let me ask you this one, one last question, if I could, and this is a little bit, a little bit off of the individual mandate, um, with, with, with our clients. And I know a lot of, a lot of the brokers that you work with, uh, we've been talking about the individual mandate, but I know a big component or that they're worried about is the employer mandate as far as, so what does this mean to me as an employer that has to file 1095 forms, 1094 forms, those kind of things. What does this does this case, uh, unless the whole ACA is struck down, uh, does this case affect those requirements uh, at all? So they did ask quite a few questions about reporting. Um, I was really taken aback and surprised by that. You know, in my little head, I, I believe that nobody cares, and the government doesn't care about how uh, difficult it is for employers to report. Um, those larger employers over 50 to report on the 1095 and 1094, what a burden that is. So in my mind, I'm like, oh, nobody knows what a burden this is, but clearly the Supreme Court does. They asked a lot of questions about reporting. Could that be severed? Um, you know, in my fairy tale land, I would love for the Supreme Court to come back and say, oh, sure, we can sever that part. Uh, the 1095, 1094 reporting for employers. Sure, we can do that. But Honestly, that's a pipe dream. What's going to happen is that employers are still going to have to file 1095s and 1094s for 2020. I do not see a path for the Supreme Court to sever employer reporting um, unless there is a different court case brought to the Supreme Court, and that would have to go through lower courts first. Um, and unfortunately for 2020, those 1095s and 1094s got a little more difficult because of the ICRA component to them. So some of our clients, when they see these forms, especially if they're doing it themselves, 
um, are going to be a little confused. They're going to think, oh my gosh, what are all these new codes? What does this mean to me? Um, but just know that that reporting is absolutely going to be required um, for 2020. There is no path for it currently to be um, deleted um, either by President Trump or President-elect Biden. Um, and so our employer groups are definitely going to have to keep doing that um, or face big penalties. And and just to let you know, the IRS has opened their Ogden, Utah office where those 226J audit letters come out of. Um, they have people reporting back to work and processing those employer-based fines again. So um, employer reporting is going to be very important for 2020. And these audits um, will resume uh, starting for 2018. So our clients need to definitely keep um, keep up reporting um, it's, and uh, keep on the lookout for those um, audit letters as well. Hmm. Oh, great. Thank you. I, I think that was a lot of great information. I think that uh, really uh, provides a good um, status on this case. And, and we really look forward to seeing how this uh, eventually turns out in, in midsummer, I guess, is when they expect the, expect the, um, uh, the case to be to, for them to rule. So, I, you know, I really do appreciate you coming today. Uh, obviously, you're welcome anytime. We love having you. And I really appreciate your time and the, and the insight that you were able to give us today. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. Always, always fun to talk to someone uh, about nerdy things like this. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. Well, we, we certainly appreciate it. And um, again, you're welcome anytime. We love having you. Thank you for listening to the MyHR Buzz podcast. For more information on this topic and many others, please visit our blog at www.myhrconcierge.com. It's a free resource and has a lot of great information on HR-related topics. If you like the podcast, please do three things for us. Uh, please leave us a review, uh, subscribe to the podcast, and tell a friend. Our podcasts are available on iTunes and many other places where you get your favorite podcast. If you'd like to provide ideas or, or feedback for future shows, uh, send us an email at podcast at myhrbuzz.com, or you can reach us at 855 538 6947 extension 108. This is Chris Cooley with My HR Concierge, and thank you for joining us. We look forward to sharing more topics with you in, in the future. <laughs>